Welcome back to our study of the letters of John. Uh, The title of this sermon is Walking and Working for the Truth. We've finished 1 John several weeks ago. Last week we studied 2 John, and today we'll finish the series by meditating on 3 John, which is the shortest New Testament letter at 219 Greek words. Uh, It's also written after the Apostle John got off the island of Patmos, meaning that it's most likely the last New Testament book written. In some ways, it's similar to 2 John, and in other ways, we'll see that it's very different. Uh, While 2 John was written to a local church, we learned, called the Elect Lady, 3 John is written to an individual, a man by the name of Gaius. Uh, Gaius was a very popular name during this time period, and even though we see this name four other times in the New Testament, this man seems to be someone different, and we don't know much about him outside of this letter. Well, have you ever heard the phrase, it's more caught than taught? It's more caught than taught. It means that a lot of times seeing something modeled is just as important, if not more important, than a simple download of content. This isn't to say that teaching is unimportant or unneeded, but sometimes for something to actually sink in, you need to see someone live it out so that you can imitate it. On the other hand, Sometimes we learn from watching a bad model, where we say, I've watched that, and I don't want to do it that way. In a sense, that's what we see in today's text. A good model and a bad model of Christian faithfulness. So let's see what we can catch. Let's dive into the text. This is the word of the Lord. 3 John chapter, or verse 1. The elder to the beloved Gaius, whom I love in truth. Beloved, I pray that all may go well with you and that you may be in good health as it goes well with your soul. For I rejoiced greatly when the brothers came and testified to your truth, as indeed you are walking in the truth. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. Beloved, It is a faithful thing you do in all your efforts for these brothers, strangers as they are, who testified to your love before the church. You will do well to send them on their journey in a manner worthy of God, for they have gone out for the sake of the name, accepting nothing from the Gentiles. Therefore, we ought to support people like these, that we may be fellow workers for the truth. I have written something to the church, But Diotrephes, who likes to put himself first, does not acknowledge our authority. So, if I come, I will bring up what he is doing, talking wicked nonsense against us. And not content with that, he refuses to welcome the brothers and also stops those who want to and puts them out of the church. Beloved, do not imitate evil, but imitate good. Whoever does good is from God. And whoever does evil has not seen God. Demetrius has received a good testimony from everyone and from the truth itself. We also had our testimony 
and you know that our testimony is true. I had much to write to you, but I would rather not write with pen and ink. I hope to see you soon, and we will talk face to face. Peace be to you. The friends greet you. Greet the friends each by name. There's four main characters in this letter. There's John, the author. There's Gaius. There's Diotrephes. And there's Demetrius. So let's see what we can learn from each of them. First, look with me in verse 1. The elder to the beloved Gaius, whom I love in truth. We've already noted this last week, that the term elder here, with reference to John, is in reference to a church office. But, in John's case, he was also getting up there in age. We know that at the time of the writing of this letter, John was most likely 80 to possibly 90-something years old. While this isn't the main point of this letter, I do think we should stop for a moment and just ponder this man's life. John, if you think about it, first met Jesus when he was a very young man. And here he is, in his 80s or even 90s, still doing gospel work laboring on behalf of Christ for Christ's bride, the church. Now, would any of us have blamed John if he had simply retired and spent his waning days just relaxing? I mean, this guy was literally exiled to a deserted island, for crying out loud. Think about that. Hadn't he already done enough for Jesus? But here he is, an octogenarian or older, still living on mission for the sake of the gospel. Can I just take a moment and speak to the older saints in the room for a second? I don't want you to mishear me. There's nothing wrong or sinful about retiring from the job that paid the bills for you and your family for so long. There's nothing wrong at all with retiring in that way. But I want to challenge each and every one of you this morning to never retire from gospel ministry. If you're a Christian, Ephesians 4 tells you that you are a minister as a part of the body. Never retire from that. I don't care if you're 60 or 100. Until the day that you die, God isn't finished using you. We need you as a church. The outside world needs you as a gospel witness. John's life of following Jesus and living on mission into his old age is worthy of our imitation. And the text tells us that John loved Gaius in truth. He loved him in truth. Remember what we learned last week. Love and truth are twin pillars in the Christian life. Love and truth, they go together. And it's no different here. John loves this man in truth. More on that in a bit. But let's keep reading. Verse 2. He says, Beloved, I pray that all may go well with you and that you may be in good health as it goes well with your soul. Isn't this instructive? 
John models for us two sides of what we should pray for as our friends. First, he prays that all may go well with Gaius and that he may be in good health. Now, in our current culture, the health and wealth prosperity gospel is rampant and it's parasitic. Preachers who teach things like, if you really love Jesus, that you'll be healthy. Or the the word of faith teachers who teach that if you have any illness, it's a sign of sin in your life. That's garbage and unbiblical. But at the same time, it's not unbiblical to pray for someone's health and well-being. John does it right here in our text. We can and should be praying this for one another. And at the same time, knowing that sometimes God uses sickness and suffering in our lives for his good purposes. And look at what John pairs with this prayer for well-being and health. He prays that it goes well with Gaius' soul. Psuche is the word that he uses. And it refers to one's whole immaterial life as opposed to the material or the physical life. For the Christian, the soul or the psuche includes our relationship with God. As Christians, we don't have any problem praying for each other's health and well-being. We do that all the time. In fact, I would suggest that 75% or more of our prayer requests revolve around those things, health and well-being. But do we pray for one another's souls? Do we even ask about one another's souls? We say that our church, our purpose as a church is up, in, and out. You see these art pieces over here. That's what they represent. Up, in, and out. Glorifying God. Worshiping him completely and fully. Up. In. Doing the one another's together as the body, as the church. And then third, out. Going out with the gospel of Jesus Christ to Santa Cruz County and to the ends of the earth. Up, in, and out. Friends, asking about and praying for one another's souls is a vital part of in. I know that it can feel like a strange question to ask, but... I want us as a church to have a culture of asking each other the question, how's your soul? How's your soul? In fact, that's my challenge to each of you this week. Ask at least one person this week, how's your soul? And then listen and pray for their souls. Don't Neglect to pray for one another's health and well-being. But pray for one another's souls. Let's keep going. Look what John writes next, verses 3 and 4. He says, For I rejoiced greatly when the brothers came and testified to your truth, as indeed you are walking in the truth. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. First, do you see that truth has legs? Twice here, John says, walking in the truth. 
walking in the truth. As we've learned multiple times over the last couple years, to walk in the Bible means one's way of life. John is praising Gaius because he's heard that his way of life is what? In the truth. So often we think of truth as something simply cerebral or up here in the brain, as something that that we think or believe. And it is that. But the point here is that if we truly believe something, we'll walk it out. We'll live it. Gaius is living a life of truth. So, what does that mean? What does it mean to walk in the truth? Well, it means that your life is lived in response to the truths of Scripture. So, do you believe in the gospel truth of Jesus' grace and mercy to you as a ruined sinner? If you believe that, then you'll live a life of thankfulness, of humility, grace, and mercy towards others. Because you actually believe the truth of the gospel. Do you believe in the the truth of eternal life after death? Then you'll hold on to the things of earth lightly. You'll persevere through suffering because you know 2 Corinthians 4, 17 and 18. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen, For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Do you believe the truth that everything that you have is a glorious gift from God? Then you'll seek to be a good steward of your money, of your time, your treasures, and your children for God's kingdom. Do you believe in the truth that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life? And that no one comes to the Father except through him? If you believe that, you'll share the good news with your lost neighbors, friends, and co-workers. Do you see how this works? To walk in the truth is much more than just cognitive. Truth has legs. It's something you live if you actually believe it. And look at John's reaction to walking Gaius, or watching Gaius walk in the truth here. Look at this. John's response to Gaius is absolute joy, isn't it? He says, I rejoiced greatly. Verse 4, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. If you want to know two things that get me excited as a pastor, it's hearing about someone coming to know the Lord and hearing that you guys are walking in the truth. That's what gets me fired up. When I hear that that you are living faithfully as Christians in this county, I'm pumped. I'm overjoyed. And so I'll ask you the question. What brings you joy? What brings you joy? Your bank account? Your sports team winning? Entertainment? Good food? 
None of these things are wrong necessarily. James 1 tells us that every good and perfect gift comes from above. But do you, alongside those things, find joy in other Christians walking in the truth? Put bluntly, is John's joy your joy? We should be spurring one another on to this kind of thing all the time as Christians. Hebrews 10, 24 and 25 says, And let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. That's what we're spurred on to do, to encourage one another to walk in the truth regularly. So, We've learned a little bit about John, and we've already been introduced a little bit to Gaius. But let's see what else we can catch from the model of Gaius's life. Look at verses 5 through 8. He says, Beloved, again, every time he writes that, he's writing to Gaius, Beloved, it is a faithful thing you do in all your efforts for these brothers, strangers as they are, who testified to your love before the church. You will do well to send them on their journey in a manner worthy of God. For they have gone out for the sake of the name, accepting nothing from the Gentiles. Therefore, we ought to support people like these, that we may be fellow workers for the truth. So let's just take a minute to try to understand what exactly is happening here in this text. Back then... There was no Motel 6 or Best Western. There was no Camp Santa Cruz or Mount Hermon for traveling missionaries to stay at when they were sent out. That didn't exist. This being the case, missionaries relied on the hospitality of those in a particular area. They'd be taken in and supported by Christians who shared their mission. Well, apparently... These missionaries were sent out, and we'll find out later in the text, that they were blocked and rejected by a man named Diotrephes. But what does Gaius do? He, on the other hand, is faithful. He took them in, and he showed them hospitality. Look at this. These these missionaries were strangers. Gaius didn't know them from Adam. And yet... He supported them. Why? The text tells us. Because they went out for the sake of the name. For the sake of the name. What name? Acts 4.12, the only name under heaven by which men may be saved. The one name in which there's forgiveness of sins. Acts 2.38, The name at which one day every knee will bow. Philippians 2.10 The name of Jesus. These missionaries were laboring not for their own gain, not for their own name, but for the name of Jesus. That's what a missionary is and what a missionary does. Look at what John writes in the the end of verse 6. He says, 
you will do well to send them on their journey in a manner worthy of God. Tune in here. One commentator reminds us that it was common in the ancient world, as in many places today, to expect a messenger to be treated as if he were the one who sent them. These missionaries are messengers of who? God. They should be treated in a manner worthy of God himself. So I'll ask the question, how would we treat Jesus if he showed up here this morning? Or was going out as a missionary from our church? Do you see John's point? In verse 7, John's saying, they accepted nothing from the Gentiles, meaning that they aren't supported by non-believers. So their support is going to come from the church, and they should be treated in a manner worthy of God. He says in verse 8, Therefore, we ought to support people like these that we may be fellow workers for the truth. Santa Cruz Baptist Church, I want us to take this seriously. We can and should be supporting Christian missionaries who are laboring for the sake of the name. First, I want you to know that I'm in the middle of conversations with a missions organization to try to find us a like-minded partner who's out on the field who shares our convictions. It's my hope for us to partner with someone well this year, for us to send financial support, for us to pray regularly and by name, for us to visit and encourage, and for us to serve and serve alongside. Second, if you're at all missions-minded, and you know what I mean by that, if you're missions-minded, please come talk to me after the service. Uh, I would like for us to to form a group of people that gets together regularly to consider these things. We're going to have our first meeting after the service on May 7th. May 7th, we're going to get together and talk about missions and pray about missions and begin a partnership in missions with someone somewhere. The text says we ought to support people like these. And notice what John says. He says that when you support people like these, you're fellow workers for the truth. Isn't that awesome? You may not have the calling or the ability to be on the ground in another country as a missionary. But when you give to missions, when you support gospel workers, text tells you that you are a fellow worker for the truth. I want us to consider that this morning. It's it's only because of the generosity of churches and of individuals that this church, Santa Cruz Baptist, exists. To get Santa Cruz Baptist up and going, it, it took partnership with around 40 different churches and numerous individuals who did exactly what John's calling for in this letter. Some of them are in this room this morning. They supported us and were fellow workers for the truth here in this county, even though they lived afar. I'm eternally grateful 
to God for these people who sacrificially gave to see a church planted here. And I want us to be a church that does that sort of thing, partnering to replant Foothill in Los Altos, partnering with missionaries on the field, partnering with networks to see the gospel go forward and churches be planted. This is good and right for us as a church to be open-handed and generous for the sake of the name. John and Gaius are models to us of faithful Christianity. Are you catching what they're teaching us? Now, we can also learn from negative examples, can't we? That's what we see next in the text. In steps, Diotrephes. Look at verses 9 and 10. He says, I have written something to the church. But Diotrephes, who likes to put himself first, does not acknowledge our authority. So if I come, I will bring up what he is doing, talking wicked nonsense against us. And not content with that, he refuses to welcome the brothers and also stops those who want to and puts them out of the church. So the Apostle John wrote an authoritative letter to this church And this guy, Diotrephes, blocked it, Uh, apparently, uh, along with the missionaries themselves. So what can we learn from Diotrephes' character? First, the text tells us that he likes to put himself first. This is outright pride. He's the, the center of the universe, and everyone else is just a supporting actor. Diotrephes must have forgotten Colossians 1, verses 15 through 18. That Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, that all things were created through him and for him. And he, meaning Jesus, is before all things. And in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. That in everything, he, Jesus, might be preeminent. Diotrephes must have forgotten all of that. You see, when you understand who Jesus is and his preeminence, it's absurd to put yourself first, isn't it? But even then, even then, even... In Jesus' preeminence. What do we read about in Philippians 2? Philippians 2, 3 through 8. Even in Jesus' exalted eminence, it says this. It says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. And here it is. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, preeminence, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. What did he do? 
he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. You see the contrast there. To place oneself first is to do the exact opposite of Christ, who absolutely had the right to put himself first. But pride is so deceptive, isn't it? And it's so prevalent. It's so hard even to see in yourself. C.S. Lewis writes, speaking of pride, he says, There is no fault which makes a man more unpopular, and no fault which we are more unconscious of in ourselves. And the more we have it ourselves, the more we dislike it in others. Isn't that true? It's almost ironic. It takes a bit of humility to even admit that you have a pride problem. On the other hand, sometimes humility itself can lead to pride. Mark Twain once quipped, If I ever achieve humility, I'll sure be proud of it. (laughs) Pride is dangerous. Friends, this was the first sin in the garden. Adam and Eve pridefully wanted to be like God. They pridefully thought they knew better than God. And they placed themselves first. God hates pride. God hates pride. Proverbs 6, verses 16 and 17 starts like this. There are six things that the Lord hates. Seven that are an abomination to him. And it begins this way. Haughty eyes. That's pride. And it's first in the list of the things that God hates. Proverbs 8, verse 13. The fear of the Lord is hatred of evil. Pride and arrogance in the way of evil and perverted speech I hate. God hates pride. So brothers and sisters, pray for the Holy Spirit to convict you of any pride in your life. Pray that you'll see it in yourself. Be humble enough to allow others to speak into your life. And know that this is completely countercultural. Our culture and everyone else is going to tell you that, that you're number one. Whatever you feel, do it. Put yourself first. But this couldn't be more anti Christ. And in Diotrephes' pride, look at what he did next. He didn't acknowledge John or the apostles' authority. And this is another character issue that we should learn from and not imitate. A lot of prideful people struggle with submitting to authority. And Diotrephes is no different here. Unfortunately, I've known a lot of men in various churches who both place themselves first and refuse to submit to the authority placed over them. And I'll just tell you from experience, every single time, it causes wreckage and hurt. It never goes well. And it's destructive to Christ's body and his bride, the church. So he's prideful. He doesn't 
submit to authority. Third, John says in verse 10 that this man was talking wicked nonsense against us. James chapter 3, verses 5 through 6 says this, So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. That's exactly right. The things people say, specifically about church leaders, is incredible. And it's often painful, wicked nonsense. Now, I wish that I could just speak of this theoretically this morning. But man, uh, over the last seven years, you wouldn't believe some of the stuff I've had said about me. I'm in a couple of different pastoral cohorts. And unfortunately, we all share this in common. This is par for the course. People have zero issue talking wicked nonsense, especially behind a keyboard online. Now, I'm not at all saying that that if a pastor is in sin, that he shouldn't be confronted. But the Bible gives us specific commands on how to do this. And that's not at all what's happening here in 3 John. What we have here is a prideful man taking pot shots at John the elder, who's been given spiritual authority over him. This is not worthy of imitation. He's prideful. He bucks authority. He speaks wickedly about his shepherd. Fourth, and not content with that, the text says, he refuses to welcome the brothers and also stops those who want to and puts them out of the church. Isn't this the exact opposite problem from what we saw last week in 2 John? In 2 John, he's writing to them and he's telling them, you as the church need to close the door to false gospel teachers, right? Here, he's saying, you're closing the door on the wrong people. You're inhospitable to actual gospel teachers. More than that, the people in the church who who want to be hospitable to these missionaries, he's throwing out of the church. Again, I, I wish I could look at this and say, that's silly. That might have happened then, but that kind of thing would never happen now. I've seen this kind of power politics in several churches. It's devilish and against Christ. It's anti-Christ. This is not behavior that we should be imitating. And that leads to John's direct command in verse 11. Beloved. Beloved. Do not imitate evil, but imitate good. Whoever does good is from God. Whoever does evil has not seen God. This is so simple and straightforward. Look around you, Christian. Where you see models of Christ-likeness, imitate them. 
Paul says this kind of thing all over scripture. He says, imitate me as I imitate Christ. So I'll ask a couple of questions. Do you have good models around you? Do you have good models around you? And maybe a harder question. Are you a good model to be imitated? Can your kids, your friends, others in the church, can they look to you as someone who does good and is from God? What would happen, for bad or for good, what would happen if these people begin to imitate you and your way of life? All of this is about discipleship. Walking in the way of Jesus and teaching others to do the same. That's discipleship. That's what this is about. Modeling the image of God for others. Calling each other to do the same. Well, in verse 12, we get introduced to our fourth and final character. We've met John, we've met Gaius, we've met Diotrephes. And now, verse 12, Demetrius has received a good testimony from everyone and from the truth itself. We also add our testimony, and you know that our testimony is true. Most scholars believe that Demetrius was the one carrying the letter, the letter of 3 John. Uh, The other letter that John sent to the church was blocked by Diotrephes along with the missionaries. So John sends Demetrius to the home of Gaius. And look at what John does to commend this brother. He commends him with the testimony of three witnesses. Number one, This man has has received a good testimony from everyone. In other words, from all the people that are at the sending church where John is. He's received a good testimony from all of those people. Second, he's received a good testimony from the truth itself. The gospel commends this guy. He walks in the truth and is in step with the gospel. You hold up his life to the truth, and the truth commends him. So he's received a good testimony from everyone. He's received a good testimony from the truth itself. And then third, John says, we also add our testimony, meaning the apostle. This guy comes well recommended as someone to imitate. John's saying, hey, the guy who's carrying this letter... He's trustworthy. You can imitate his life and his doctrine. And then John closes with this. He says, similarly to last week, he says, I had much to write to you, but I would rather not write with pen and ink. I hope to see you soon, and we will talk face to face. Peace be to you. The friends greet you. Greet the friends each by name. Similar to last week, John is incredibly personal, preferring in-person communication rather than written. But here, he takes it a step farther, doesn't he? He calls them friends. Maybe 
He has Jesus' words in mind from John 15, verses 15 through 17. Jesus says, I no, lo- no longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my father, I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you so that you love one another. He's coming to see them in person and he calls them friends. And he says, greet the friends each by name. I love this. (laughs) I picture Gaius going from person to person with this letter. Hey, Matt, John greets you. Hey, Jeff, John greets you. Hey, Loreen, John greets you. Hey, Alex, John greets you. Each soul has a name. Each soul has a name. Do you know that? Each soul has a name, and John rightly cares for each of them as individuals. Understand this. I love you guys collectively as a church. But I love each of you as individual names and souls, too. Rob and I don't just generally pray for Santa Cruz Baptist Church. We pray for the members of this church by name, regularly. Each soul has a name. In closing, I'll ask this. Are you a Diotrephes or a Demetrius? Is your life worthy of imitation? If not, the solution is to look to Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. The solution is to look to Jesus. If you're a Christian, take this opportunity to do that, to repent if necessary, and follow Jesus again, walking in truth, modeling your life after his, finding true joy and satisfaction in him. And if you're here today and you're not a Christian, We invite you to make this decision for the first time today. Know that every single one of us in this room, every single one of us is a sinner who has rebelled against a holy God. Every single one of us, like Diotrephes in this text, have put ourselves first, have rejected God's authority, and spoken wicked nonsense against him with our lives. But God, but God, in his mercy and grace, sent his only son, Jesus, to die the death that we deserve. 
He died on the cross in our place as our substitute, forever defeating sin and Satan and death itself on our behalf. And anyone, and I do mean anyone, anyone who turns from their sin and trusts in Jesus will be saved. If that's you this morning, we invite you to follow Jesus. After the service, Rob is going to be out at the table and would love to talk to you or just to pray with you if you have something you'd like prayer for. We would love to talk to you about this decision and what it looks like to be discipled into Jesus' ways. Praise God for the letters of John. Let's pray.